and midway through it, I think I just realized I really loved it. I was there and I looked around and I was like, wow, I haven't looked at the clock today. <laughs> I'm not waiting for this to be over. Um, I don't really want to leave. Um, and I think it was the first time I really found myself in a place where, um, where I recognized that I was happy uh, and just um, where I should be. This is Super Shiro's, the show where we interview women doing amazing things in the world to inspire, empower, and entertain you. Welcome to Super Shiro's. Hi, today we're here with Leslie Bennett. Leslie is the owner of Pinehouse Edible Gardens, an Oakland, California-based landscape design and build firm that creates aesthetic edible gardens and productive outdoor spaces, and is co-author of The Beautiful Edible Garden. Hi, Leslie. <laughs> Hi, Kaylin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So please explain a little bit more about what you do. Uh, sure. Well, I uh, I'm I live and, uh, and my uh, work is based here in Oakland, California. Um, and I run Pine House Edible Gardens is a design, build, and maintenance uh, gardening company. And um, so we work uh, in Oakland and all around the Bay Area, um, designing, building, and then taking care of uh, beautiful edible gardens. Um, and really, our specialty is uh, creating landscapes that are both beautiful and productive and that have um, food food plants incorporated alongside ornamentals so that people can really, um, yeah, really create landscapes that or have landscapes that are growing food for them and helping them to connect with the land in that way. Um, and we also really love to help people sort of incorporate, um, incorporate even even further ways that they can uh, relate to the land that they live with by helping them to like tap into cultural um, narratives, um, family stories, um, rituals um, that may be part of their family histories um, and that are land-based. Um, so yeah, it's a lot about creating these landscapes and helping our clients to connect to the land. How how have you helped people connect to land? I know you basically just explained it, but more, can you get more specifically about like the rituals and things like that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, uh, for a ritual, exactly that. So um, one of our, so I think in general, people these days tend to be pretty separated from the land. Um, the way we live in sort of modern urban cities isn't, isn't very land-based anymore, but we all come from these sort of ancestral lineages where we were a lot closer to the land. And I think what people these days are sort of starting to sense, even if they don't have the words for it, is that they would like to be closer to the land and we might be able to find some sort of spiritual sustenance or just peace or, you know, whatever it's going to do to make things feel better might happen if we um, start gardening or having a relationship with our house plants or and I think both of those things are relating to plants and land Um, and so sort of uh, specific things that we've a lot of people come to us kind of with that general idea and then um, you know it can be really simple it can be super simple like I actually just got off the phone with a client who was like you know what can we add she'd never mentioned it before but she's like can we add daffodils to the front yard? She's like, my grandma had daffodils and my grandma always used to tell me, she was so excited when the daffodils bloomed because it meant that spring was here. And that was just a really strong memory she had from her childhood um, that we 
now now this client is a grown woman and has her own children and she wants her own children to sort of learn you know it's like that magic of the daffodils and it really is magical when daffodils eat you know I've, I see it every year but they just popped up in my garden and it's like yeah the daffodils are here and my kids are seeing it too so that's a really simple example um that's just sort of in pretty accessible family history and then um another client of mine is um Jewish she was born and raised in Russia and came here as an immigrant and so um here she celebrates um, the Jewish high holidays and um, uh, is very closely, they're a big part of her life, um, celebrating all of them. And she's, they do a big Sukkot celebration in their backyard, um, which is sort of the agricultural um, uh, high holiday celebration. And traditionally you're supposed to build a, build like a, it's like a, how do you, like a canopy overhead with um, palms. And then there's certain ingredients that you're supposed to use. And I actually can't remember what they are, but for different high holidays in the Jewish tradition, I know that important things are honey and apples. And there's a certain citrus called etrog. Um, there's a, a, a series of things that come up um, as very specific ingredients for different Jewish rituals. Um, and so we made sure she wanted her garden to include all these things and um, especially the, for the Sukkot and so we planted a palm tree a fan-shaped palm tree and she harvested that from her own land to create her own shelter and then we um, made a place for bees for her to keep bees so she grows she keeps her own bees she harvests her honey and she uses those honeys in her ceremony um, and same with the apples same with uh, the myrtle same there's a willow um, there's a bunch of different plants that all have different meanings um, within her very well-established um, uh, traditions. And she now gets to kind of complete the circle and really know like what that willow tree is or like really what it takes to make that honey. Right. Um, and to know that it's sort of all supported by what she's investing and putting into her land. Um, so yeah, so that's that's an example. Well, it definitely seems like you're, helping people with their emotional well-being. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And what you were saying about your client who's connecting to the daffodils, that reminds me of my stepmom because she's gone into gardening during quarantine and she was like, my grandma used to garden and now she talks to her plants all the time and she's yes. very much into it. <laughs> well, and actually I've been following your mom's garden because my husband's been working with her mm -hmm. to help her garden. Uh, and so I see the pictures every day and it's beautiful. And I'm so glad that um, she's so happy with it. And it, it is that like the, once you have a, once you have a space that is um, just full of plant life and is also visually, I think, inspiring and connecting, like it all comes to life. And yeah, you end up talking to those plants. <laughs> you really do. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah and, and they support you back. Like I love the idea of plant allies and plants as our friends um, and knowing that they're our friends, but they've also been our parents' friends and our grandparents' friends and the, uh, the ancestors that came before that. And then, then it's a very deep friendship. Right. Okay, so taking it back, what made you get into gardening? <laughs> what made me get into gardening? Um, uh, also, uh, like mental health and wellness. Um, I had, um, let's see, my mom always tried, my mom loves gardening. So I was definitely introduced to it through her and we used to be in the backyard gardening, except that I wasn't really gardening. She was gardening and I was... <laughs> I was avoiding it. Um, and, and then, um, yeah, I kind of went through my normal, I grew up in the suburbs of Palo Alto and I, um, 
I went to school, I focused a lot on academics. Um, I ended up uh, studying to be a lawyer and became a lawyer. Um, and I worked at a law firm um, doing, I actually studied land land use law and environmental justice. So I was, I was always trying to be with the land, but then I ended up working in a corporate law firm. And um, which was very much because I had to pay back uh, student loans. Um, and it's a, it's a, difficult position that I think a lot of young people find themselves in. So I was, um, I really, I was trapped. I felt trapped. Like it was not good, <laughs> um, but there I was. Uh, and I became really depressed um, working in this um, very white dominant, um, you know, very racist space. That's what a lot of corporate America is and law mm -hmm. firms are pretty, uh, pretty deep into that as well. So um, it was a really not easy place to be a black woman. Um, I was, really stuck there with these huge student loans. And, um, and I, yeah, I was so sad, <laughs> such a sad person, um, such a sad person that I actually came to the point where I had a breakdown and had to leave. And I stayed, um, I was at home for, for months. Um, at that time I lived in England um, and I was really not well. And I started, I had this little backyard in my little sort of townhouse in England and I eventually sort of made it out of bed and into the backyard and I um, I started pruning the roses. It was like this really old rose bush that had just been sitting there. And um, yeah, I pruned the roses a lot. <laughs> I mean, it was a really big rambling room. So I would deadhead them. I Googled how to deadhead. I didn't know anything. And, um, and I just really, it was very peaceful. It was very meditative. I enjoyed it. Um, and I guess I just kept working my way through the garden. And um, I had been wanting to learn more about farming and growing food because I'd been sort of sitting at my desk, just leading this very urban, modern life where I'd like, I was always in a rush. I was always buying food on the go. I just felt really disconnected. So um, as part of my sort of healing time, I decided to take this two-week permaculture class um, that was out in this apple orchard in rural England. And I, I maybe I'd been to, I'd started dabbling a little bit before this, um, but I really hadn't spent time significantly at a farm. So I went out to a farm and I was there for two weeks learning all these permaculture things, but mostly just being there. And, um, and midway through it, I think I just realized I really loved it. I was there and I looked around and I was like, wow, I haven't looked at the clock today. <laughs> I'm not waiting for this to be over. Um, I don't really want to leave. Um, and I think it was the first time I really found myself in a place where um, where I recognized that I was happy uh, and just um, where I should be. So um, so from there, I, I kind of, I think I just got that knowledge and realized that that's, I wanted to learn more. There's so like once you start gardening, there's just you realize there's there's a whole universe of plants mm -hmm. out there, and you really you can never know it all. So it's um, it's endlessly interesting. And at that point, I, I literally knew nothing. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna. I ended up with three years of disability leave from this um, law firm, um, and so I decided to um, set myself to learning how to grow food um, and how to how to learn. So I went off to a farm in Jamaica. My family is um, Jamaican and English. So um, I'd always wanted to connect more with Jamaica. So I moved to Jamaica, found a small organic farm, um, learned how to 
farm. <laughs> there I was. Um, that was an adventure. Um, moved to, after spending about a year there, I moved back to California where I was born and raised and um, spent time on organic farms um, in Mendocino and uh, near Nevada City. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's a good chunk of the story. Well, I'm glad you got out of that toxic work situation. Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so, yeah, I wouldn't wish that sort of work situation on anybody, but I, I'm also so thankful that it kind of pushed me to the edge of what really felt at the time like jumping off, uh, jumping off the plank. You know, it felt like I was, um, I would not have been able to decide, you know, I, I remember actually gardener and a farmer, I'm going to learn. And if it doesn't work, then I'll just, I don't know why this made sense at the time. I was like, I'll be a florist. <laughs> that was it. I think a florist felt like more of a known entity. So that was my backup plan. And I was like, that'll be my life. Um, and I, <laughs> I just felt, it felt really frightening, I guess is my point. It was a really scary choice. It's not what anybody in my family had done or did. Um, it's not what my parents hoped for me. Um, it's not what I had ever even considered for myself. So um so yeah, I think it took pretty dire circumstances for me to um, to get real with myself mm-hmm. and try and find what I really wanted to do. Well, now going before the lawyer, what did you want to do when you were younger and how did you end up becoming a lawyer? That is a good question. Um, what did I, oh, what did I want to do when I was younger? I think when I was younger, like elementary school and high school, I was really, um, I was like a, it was around the, I guess it wasn't the first Earth Day, but Earth Day was a big deal. And like environmentalism. I just remember being really struck by kind of save the earth type things that we were taught. And I really wanted to take care of the earth and save the earth. And I used to, I remember in high school, I'd be telling my friends not to throw their trash out the window. And I I was that friend. (laughs) I was like, like, pick that up. Um, This is our earth. Um, And... Yeah, so I, um, yeah, I was an environmentalist. So I went to college and studied environmental. Um, it was actually a really cool hybrid program called environmental justice. That was a sort of hybrid between environmental science and social studies um, around racial justice issues. So, um, so I focused on environmental justice, which is very much about black and brown people um, sort of getting the short end of the stick when it comes to um, uh, environmental, like where we live and the environmental quality that surrounds us. Um, and through that, I think I got, you know, those are like policy issues. I think it felt pretty clear to me. I was like, okay, I really want to fix these problems. The best step is to become a lawyer. Um, and I think, you know, I think my thinking on that has grown a little bit now. Um, or expanded, like I think there's lots of different ways to contribute to solving problems. But um, while I didn't enjoy being a lawyer, um, I am glad I got the training of being a lawyer and learned um, learned mostly just how it works and not to be afraid of it. Um, and so, yeah, law school wasn't super fun either. But <laughs> it's, it's um, yeah, it's it's a very helpful tool, and I think it gave me a lot of confidence to um, to be able to speak clearly about um, what I think about things. So, yeah. Well, um, speaking of environmental justice and just black and brown people, can mm-hmm. you tell me a bit about your equity pricing and black sanctuary gardens. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, that's a good sort of connector because I think my my sort of foundation was very much in has always been around being an environmentalist and being uh, really passionate about racial justice. And I've, I guess, up until now, spent my life just learning about both of them and trying to find the meeting points. And I think um, in becoming a gardener and a garden designer, I really found this creative space where I was able to create beauty and I was really able to, um, to learn about plants and have deeper relationships with plants. It really felt like um, I was finally doing something that I loved to do. Um, but then to turn that into my work, um, I found myself operating within capitalism um, and operating, you know, putting in designing and creating gardens here in the Bay Area, um, but really wherever I would be in the, in the United States, um, gardening reflects or shows, I guess, uh, issues of like land access, of um, disparate income, of generational wealth theft, all those things show up in, um, in gardening. Um, and what I was, in, I, I guess I, I have come to realize, like I, I encountered a lot of whiteness. <laughs> I encountered whiteness in, yeah. in my organic farming adventures. And you know, I was off on these farms up in Northern California and I was always the only black woman um, surrounded by middle-class white people exploring their organic farming dreams. And um, that always felt really off. Um, and then, I mean, that's like an understatement. It felt, felt like a lot of things. <laughs> uh, uh, it, that felt like a lot of not great things. And then becoming a professional gardener and designing beautiful landscapes um, also meant I encountered a lot of whiteness. And um, and I guess I just was, I was very uncomfortable with it. And I sat with that discomfort for a long time um, and eventually realized that what was happening is that I was, what I wanted to see, what I was not seeing and what I wanted to see is um, seeing black people and black women, especially uh, centered in the American landscape. Um, and I wanted land, I wanted to be, seeing and creating landscapes that um that were all about black women you know that were, yeah. that showed like what we love what we uh what we want to grow around us and that um that support us that make our lives more beautiful and easeful and inspiring um i just realized there were really obvious structural reasons why that was not um i wasn't seeing a lot of that and i felt i'd reached the point in my career where i had enough like resources and skills like I knew knew what I was doing um and could do things my way and my way was about and is about prioritizing black women so um so anyway, that was a long answer to saying um I came up with the Black Sanctuary Gardens project um three years ago in 2018 um and it was really kind of just a casual start like with a friend who wanted a garden in East Oakland and it was sort of like a friends and family discount. Then I was like, you know what? I want to do this more and make this more possible. Um, and so um, I extended the friends and family discount to myself for the second garden in the series because we cannot forget ourselves. And I feel like that's actually, I would say it laughingly, but I think it's actually really important. Like we've got to, um, as a black woman, especially, like I can't be not helping myself um, yeah. as I'm helping others. 
So um, that's very intentional that I'm a part of the series as well. And then last year um, and going into this year, we've continued the project. And I think last year I just felt super um, COVID just highlights the disparities in our country so much. It felt that much more urgent um, to really support the black women around me who, um, who for many reasons were just like feeling the impact of COVID life so much. Um, and I know how powerful garden spaces be, can be to, to just help. So, um, so anyway, so that's maybe a longer answer, but that's kind of Black Sanctuary Gardens came to be through that and, um, and continues to be, a, the premise of the project is that we're centering black women in, uh, in gardens and garden designs um, or in the, in the, in the landscape. Um, and then there's definitely, um, and there's a portrait series that goes along with it. Um, so we're cr actually creating gardens for black women um, or with and for black women. And then there's a portrait series where we're taking pictures of, um, of black women in their gardens. Cause I feel like that's a huge um, just space that's out there. Like I certainly have not seen enough pictures of black women resting in their gardens in my life. <laughs> I see tons of pictures of white people living their best lives in the garden. And um, and I feel like media has a problem with that. And like, I think what the world needs more of is more pictures of us in gardens. So um, so my con my my hope is to contribute to that that space and, and make some of those images. Um, yeah, and then the equity frame, the equity pricing framework is um, just sort of like the back end of that. Um, they're, the Black Sanctuary Gardens is not is is really about that concept of Black women at the center. Um, some of the Black women that we work with in the Black Sanctuary Gardens project need support with funding, and so we direct funds toward that. Some have enough money to create their own gardens. Um, I think that's really important to state too. Like it's not, um, uh, yeah, just to not make assumptions about where Black people and black women are at. Um, but basically we meet black women where they are financially, try to um, direct funds to, uh, to fill in whatever gaps are needed to make the gardens happen. And um, I've instituted a standard equity tax on an equity tax on all of our standard projects. Um, so everybody who reaches out to me gets an email that says, hey, um, here's our pricing. It's it's this price to meet with me. This is what our work costs. And here's a, it's a 4% um, line item markup on whatever your total is. Um, and if you would like to be, um, uh, you have two options for receiving financial support. One is a, um, one is equity pricing. If you're black, indigenous or disabled on a uh, fixed income. And secondly is if, and that's, then you can get small discounts, which are basically, mm -hmm. I take that 4% and uh, add it up and help, help, help people just reduce their bills a little bit for our work. And then for Black Sanctuary Gardens, it's um, fewer projects and it's one or two or three gardens a year. Um, and they're much more heavily um, subsidized um, also from that equity tax and from public donations. Um, and then, the Black Sanctuary Gardens participants also agree to um, let me take their photo and sort of participate in the public artistic elements of the project. So um, yeah, sorry, I know that was a really long answer, but that's what it is. <laughs> that's what we do. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I just want to say I appreciate what you're doing because Black representation matters, especially for a Black woman. So it even does. if it's, if you are being like, oh, well, it's just a garden, like it doesn't matter, but it's important anyway. 
Thank you. Thank yeah. you. That's really nice to hear. I appreciate it. Yeah, of it's uh, yeah, it's definitely felt like a um, it's been an edge for me to decide to to very publicly. I mean, given that I I rely on capitalism, I rely on these wealthy white people for my business. It's felt really difficult to say, you know what, here's my priority is actually black women or you're going to need to be comfortable with that. Um, that has been really, um, you know, I, I imagine other people might be more comfortable with that. But for me, that was, um, that took some, um, that took some working up to, to be okay with mm -hmm. and to feel like, okay, I can, see where this falls. You know, I may lose some clients. I may gain some clients. I don't know, but it felt um, pretty edgy for me. And so um, it's been really nice to see that one, it's actually only helped my business um, and um, actually helped me to attract the type of clients I want to work with, um, regardless of race. Um, clients who, like myself, really believe in racial justice and in um, doing, using our privilege as we, as best we can to, su to support um, equity, equitable things. Um, and it's also been so nice to hear from black women who are like, you know what, I love this. And this is, you know, exactly what you just said. So thank you for being one of those black women who's given me the positive feedback because I need it. <laughs> this is, uh, you know, it's all, it's all a journey and um, I'm sort of figuring it out as I go. Yeah. Well, I guess once again, I appreciate it. I'm going to keep on saying that. <laughs> thank um, you. So what does a typical workday look like for you before COVID? And then also after COVID. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, actually not that different. Um, that's kind of an interesting thing. And I think a really nice thing about being, um, doing garden related work. Um, in fact, I'd say it looks exactly the same. Um, yeah, a typical work day. Let's see, I'm probably at this point, I have 13 employees who work for me. Actually 17 or 18, if I include my crew. Um, they're technically a separate company, but they work for me 99% of the year. So um, I have 17 people who work for me. Um, almost, almost everybody's full-time. So it's a lot of people. Um, and I thereby spend a lot of time in my office <laughs> organizing them. Um, I'm probably out in the gardens like twice a week. Um, I go and do either meetings with clients, um, I'm either, I'm working with my design team to lay out plants on site or check hardscape installs. Um, sometimes I go and check on our maintenance client accounts um, with my, we have a maintenance manager. So I go with her and we check out gardens and just give our gardeners feedback and come up with new fun ideas. Um, yeah. And sometimes I enter like meetings with my, and for the, probably the biggest, and then the rest of the time I'm like organizing this business, um, both organizing this business, delegating and just managing everybody who's doing the things uh, and spending time sort of visioning my next step or, you know, figuring out the framework of my equity program <laughs> or, or my smoke policy or whatever, or working with my uh, office manager to figure out those things. So um yeah, that's a, that's a balance. And I would say the only thing that's really changed is that I don't get to have design meetings in person anymore with my design team. So that sucks. We do it on Zoom. Um, we do most of the on-site client meetings in person, um, just outdoors and socially distanced. Um, and um, 
Yeah. And I know my team, we used to drive together a lot to places and it was fun to, we're like a very not centralized business. We just, we, before COVID, we all worked from home too, um, which is helpful because a lot of us are moms. So it's, it's been a really, it's a good work to be able to do as a, as a working mom. But um, yeah, I definitely miss driving with my team and, you know, just getting to chat and hang out and be friends. So, um, so that's a big shift. Yeah. How did it feel when you first hired your employees and you realized that you had like your own business and you were the owner? Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I remember my very first employee, uh, which was a long time ago, it was an, it was an assistant, uh, my first office assistant. Um, and I had a, a this wonderful guy who offered to um, coach, like, give us some business coaching. Um, and he, I mean, he really had to hold my hand through hiring somebody. <laughs> I like talking, it felt so scary. It's so scary to like decide, commit to hiring somebody. But, you know, he really emphasized if you can hire somebody to do something that will free you up to do something else um, that you need to do and you don't have time to do right now, then, you know, you're ready for an employee. And, um, and so that's what we went with. And um, yeah, I think I mostly it just felt really scary. It felt scary that after I hired that person, it still felt scary for a long time. Um, because I don't know, you just always worry that you won't have enough work or money to pay people. Um, and I think that's where, like, as an entrepreneur, you just, you, you have to have some faith and just like an ability to let go and be like, you know what, like I've worked for them for the next two weeks and then probably there will be more <laughs> and you just have to go with it. And um, yeah, I think, you know, then I, I worked up to one or two or, and, you know, I, I, when I first started, I hired my first designer, that was, um, it was really helpful. And I actually particularly chose, uh, I was, rec- it was sort of recommended that I, somebody pointed out to me, this is a good way to go. And it actually did work out really well. I was about to have my first child and I hired um, a designer who had a baby who was about a year old or eight, eight or nine months old. And it worked out really well because um, she was okay with a flexible schedule. Um, and that was a really, um, you know, she was happy to end up, you know, fine, we don't have work today. Like I'll stay home and hang out with my child who I love. Um, so I think hiring somebody who was open to being flexible was helpful. But, um, but in general, the first couple of employees, they're all scary. <laughs> and now I think these days I finally reached the point where I'm like, it's going to be fine. Everything right. is just always growing. There will, there will be work. Um, and I feel pretty confident, but it's taken 10 years to like be able to hire without having a heart attack about it. So, <laughs> well, I'm glad that you got over that and I wouldn't say like a fee. Well, yeah, nervousness. There we go. That's the word. Yeah. And now you have all the employees you have now and you have a successful business. Yeah. So, that feels good. Feels really good. <laughs> how is it being an entrepreneur, a mom, a wife, and all the things? How does that all work? <laughs> um, I'm not sure it does all work. Um, I don't know. It's very hard. It is really hard. And I think COVID's put a whole nother it actually probably was like kind of working before COVID. And then uh, I think the childcare schools thing has probably put every working mom into major disarray this year. So I, I would say it, it may not be working, 
and I guess I just say that to like, it's really not sustainable, the current setup. Um, and I don't think it's sustainable for really any working parents in this country right now. Um, but in general, um, how does it work? Um, I think super, super clear boundaries. I, I have always, I think cause I, cause I lived in Europe for 10 years. I spent my twenties living in Europe and the Europeans are really, really good about, uh, work-life boundaries and, you know, they, they work to live, not live to work, um, as the Americans, mm. I think that's something they say about us, <laughs> but, um, uh, so I got pretty clear, I think I kind of came to, came, that was naturally my tendency, but it was really helpful to have that modeled by living in Europe, that, you know, work ends at five, and no, we don't answer emails on the weekend, and, like, that would be crazy if we did, because um, when else would we live, <laughs> so, um, so I think I've always been really good about having those boundaries, um, and of course, as an entrepreneur, especially in the early years, like there are nights you just have to work and you just have to stay up and get the thing done. But um, but in general, I think really good boundaries around um, work hours. Um, I don't know. It's <laughs> My husband and I ran our business together for a long time and that was fun, but also really hard. So like, we came to realize that boundaries were really important there too. We ended up running two separate gardening businesses so that we could have some boundaries. Um, and yeah, with the kids, I think it's trying to also build in time to be by myself so I can recharge. And then when I'm with them, trying to be like actually on and like happy with them. Um, so yeah, it's a work in progress. Um, but I do love all parts of my life. And so it's worth balancing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably one of the hardest roles um, in this country. Yeah, that's funny that you said that because I just recently applied for internships for the summer and my stat one was like, you don't have to work. Like, that's our problem. You feel like Americans feel like they have to work all the time. Yeah. And I was, you just brought that up. I was like, wow, you're just talking about like that yesterday or something. Yeah, yeah, it's really true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like you can just like relax for the summer. <laughs> like, it's so weird that we don't, we just don't think that's okay. Yeah. Um, and it takes, you know, I think it takes a long time to shake off the parts of that that are to figure out what what about what's true for you and how much um, how much you do and do not want to spend your entire life working. Yeah, I mean, luckily for me, the scholarships options I chose are things I actually want to learn. Like I, I applied for a filmmaking one, so it's still fun. It's not work, yeah. work but yeah, exactly. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that's that's that is exactly how that should be and I mean and yeah exactly and I think that's the other thing like work can be fun and I mm-hmm. think a lot of you know it's important to remember that like I love my work and I especially right. love I'm so glad that I've been able that going especially in these COVID times um you know my work involves like going outside and talking to people in a socially distanced way and um yeah, it's actually felt really interactive and really nice. And it's, it's been really good. So um, like, I've not had the experience of like that slowing down and being isolated as much. Um, it's more like, there's a lot of gardens going happening. <laughs> so anyway, so, um, so yeah, I think there's my answer. Well, I know you just kind of said it, but because of COVID, you think you have, you've gotten busier, like more people trying to be active in their gardens because they're home all the time definitely yeah I mean I actually just got my like my business definitely doubled or more than doubled last year 
um, mm. which was really hard as I also had no childcare <laughs> for most of the year um, or very limited childcare. And um, I think almost, I mean, most landscapers experience that. So um, anybody in the landscape industry in the last year plus has been just totally swamped and uh, overwhelmed because it's it's been really over. I think nationally landscaping went up like either I read an article either 250% or 400%. Um, so that's what we've been living. It's been that. Well, I feel like that ties into what we were just talking about, about workload and all that because now that we're they're stuck at home all the time, they're realizing, wow, my house isn't as great as I thought, or they want to make those improvements and things because now they're stuck at home all the time. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And then on our part as like as garden designers and landscapers, um, you know, I really had to like, what do you do when the surge is coming at you? Do you like try and catch all the balls? Do you let some of them go by? Um, especially like, you know, last year I felt like the world was ending any minute. I was like, let me just catch all the balls. But that was driving me absolutely crazy. So this year I'm in a real practice of like, we can, you know, we're booked up for this year and we will serve you in 2022, um, which is where we're at. <laughs> so that's um, a practice. How has that been just trying to like, let some go and take, like, how do you choose? Do you just say first come I'll take you and now we're full? Like, how did you choose that? Uh, I mean, for one thing, it's sort of just like efficiency. I think any business owner, like a lot of people will reach out to you and end up wasting your time because they actually don't know what your rates are, like how much landscaping costs and you just end up having. So I've clarified, I spent a lot of time clarifying my client intake and letting people know our rates, letting people know our minimums, letting people know what, what amount of money they need to have to be even having a conversation about landscaping with our, with my business. Um, so that I don't have to have those conversations. Um, I've increased my rates. I've increased my consult fees. Um, or I guess I've doubled my consult fees um, to really just filter out, um, uh, not not like trying to be exclusive, but not trying to waste my time. Because um, uh, landscaping does, it costs a lot of money, um, you know, just like any construction project does. And a lot of people think, oh, it's just a garden, just some like cute little pretty plants. It's like, no. Yeah. This is like reaching out to get a kitchen remodel. Like it's not going to cost a hundred dollars. Like it's going to cost a lot. Um, so yeah. So I think really clarifying my client intake has been huge. And then um, on top of that, clarifying like uh, making my message clear, like who I am and what I'm offering. And that's where a lot of the equity pricing, the black sanctuary gardens and saying like, Hey, this is what I'm, this is what I'm into. And if you want to work with me, like you're going to be into it too. Um, like both, like you're just going to be, you're going to think it's cool and you're going to be contributing financially. Um, and you know, that's lost me plenty of people. <laughs> um, but like, truthfully, like, and now it's like my number one, I like skim down to see their answer to that. Like, are you interested in this? Um, and some people are like, no, or they're like, this doesn't seem fair. And I'm like, well, bye. <laughs> you know? um, and you know, that's great. And actually my, my clients have become, and then a lot, most people um, are like, yeah, I think that's so awesome. That's so cool. I sought you out specifically because of this is what you're about. Um, and it's turned out that those people are lovely people to work with. Like they're really nice. They respect me. They're like kind and caring and thoughtful. They're not. So I've managed to 
um, attract a pool of clients that are, um, that want to work with me and that I want to work with. And so that's felt, um, felt really good. And I guess now I'm just sort of just finessing that even more and getting to choose more and more who's a good fit to work with. So yeah, it's very fortunate. How are you at the beginning with that whole thing? Like saying, this is what I do, what I am, how I am. And there's no change in that. Like at the beginning where you, where you, did you try to fit, change yourself to fit around what people's needs, other people's needs and things like that? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Starting in business 10 years ago. um, I mean, it's taken me 10 years to get to this point right now. Um, And again, you know, maybe others might've gotten there faster. Others might take longer, but it's taken me 10 solid years of like growing into myself and gaining confidence in my skills, getting clarity around what matters to me. Um, You know, when I started, I just needed clients. Like I would take whoever, um, whoever reached out to me. I dealt with a whole bunch of just rude people. Um, and, um, and I also felt really scary to be putting myself out, um, as a black woman, uh, you know, trying to collect a $30,000 check from some wealthy mansion somewhere. I just, it didn't feel, I was coming out of this like incredibly racist work situation. And I felt, um, I don't know, I guess I just felt like not very safe. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it's taken a long time to feel um, like secure and confident and clear. Um, so yeah, anyways, all, it's, it was a process for sure. Yeah, well, final question. <laughs> all right. If you could travel back in time and talk to your 15-year-old self, what advice would you give? That is a nice question. Uh, what would I say? Ooh. Um, I think I would say, I don't know, it does relate to my work a little bit, but um, I think I was really raised on this like independent woman story of um, like, go get educated, like you can do it, like you, you don't need anybody to help you. And I did do all those things and I did um get all the degrees and I am able to support myself um and I don't need anybody um on paper um but I think um what I would tell myself really clearly is that I deserve somebody to help me and I deserve people around me to help me and support me um that it it's uh just because you can do it on your own doesn't mean that that's how you should do it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, just to, I mean, I feel like I, I have lots of support in my life, but um, it's almost like, you know, nice people just landed with me and like, I'm lucky to have them. I haven't really set out and said, Hey, this is my requirement. My requirement is that you support me and you support me and you support me. Um, Cause I kind of didn't think that I, um, I don't know. I, I don't think I necessarily thought I would find somebody who'd support me. Um, so yeah. And I think that's maybe some of this, the, what we're taught as black women in this country is that maybe we're not going to be supported. Um, I think for me, that feels like it's tied to my identity as a black woman. Um, I don't know if that's 
true for all black women. Um, but anyway, so I think, yeah, I would really give a strong counter to that story and say, hey, you deserve to be held and um, supported and cared for and all the things. Yeah, that I like that because like you said, people are like, you don't need, you can do it all by yourself. You're successful. You're caught, you can like, which is great, mm-hmm. but there's the also downside that you feel like you don't deserve anything or yeah. You, know, you, yeah. Have to, you also have to pump yourself up in that aspect. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you it's, for that. It's a tricky one. Yeah. Cause yeah. like we do want to be independent women, you know, it, I'm so glad I don't, I don't rely on anybody. I'm not stuck in any situations. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's the advice I would give. So thanks for asking. Thank you for giving a great answer. <laughs> You're welcome. So one, thank you again, once again, for doing this. You're very welcome. I'm so glad. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I truly feel uh, honored to be, uh, that you reached out. And um, I love the topic of your podcast and um, also just really want to support you as a Black woman. And um, yeah, so really glad to get to connect with you and do this, uh, do this show with you. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you for listening. Once again, we want to thank Leslie for being on the show and talking about the great things she's doing in the world. I loved how she talked about supporting other Black people, especially Black women. I really respect and admire the work she's doing to uplift others. If you want a beautifully landscaped garden, go check out pinehouseediblegardens.com. Share this show with other superheroes in your life. Now go explore the world.